Uh, we're going to pray and ask for the Lord's help before we look at this part of his word. Please join me. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we praise you because you speak and you speak in your word, not only about yourself, but the way to be saved through Jesus. So we pray, Father God, that by your spirit this morning that you might enable us to see Jesus, to see him by faith, to trust him and to live in response to all that you've done for us through him. Enable me to speak clearly, truthfully, faithfully for the glory of your name and for the good of each one of us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you may not claim I am the greatest, like Muhammad Ali, but maybe secretly you desire that. Or maybe you just get jealous or resentful of others who are greater. Do you get jealous or envious when another student gets better marks than you? Or when another student runs faster in the beat test or the cross country? Or when they play guitar or violin better? As an adult, do you get jealous of the person who has nicer things or better health, better looks, a better marriage or maybe a marriage? Do you get jealous of the one who has more friends or gets more likes online? At work, do you get jealous of the other person, that person who's recognised or promoted instead of you? Do you get jealous of someone else who gets the glory? That's what we see in John chapter 3. John moving, John the Baptist moving to the background, Jesus getting the glory, Jesus being greater, and is John okay with that? Come with me as we learn from John the Baptist, as we learn about the Lord Jesus and how to respond to him. Last week we heard Jesus say he will be lifted up, he'll be lifted up on a cross and everyone who looks to him will live eternally. And as we heard last week, it's about look and live. Look at Jesus, trust in him and you will live forever. And the readers of the gospel know that Jesus has come for his people's salvation. They know that it requires a a radical rebirth Chapter 3, verse 3. The readers of this gospel know what Jesus wants of people. They know that those who believe in him will have eternal life, while those who do not believe, verse 16, verse 17, those who do not believe are condemned. And so many people are coming to him, many people are coming to Jesus, and in the light of this, John the Baptist maintains his unwavering support of Jesus. And we're going to look at the response of people to Jesus under these three headings, three G's, going, greater, given. Our first point is going. After clearing the Jerusalem temple and talking with Nicodemus, Jesus heads out into the Judean countryside. There, verse 22 says, he spends time with his disciples and baptised. But if you skip over and look at chapter 4, verse 2, it's clear that it was actually Jesus' disciples who did the baptising. Still, it means Jesus has been preaching, he's been calling people to repent, to turn from sin and follow him, And those who become followers of Jesus get baptised. 
But verse 23, people are still coming to be baptised by John the Baptist. He's further north in Samaria. And the comment that this was before John was put in prison tells us that the events in chapters 1 to 3 happened before the events recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke's Gospels. So if you were to look at Matthew, sorry, Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it speaks of Jesus' public ministry occurring in Galilee after John was imprisoned. And so what we're reading here in the early chapters of John, in John's Gospel, it reveals that Jesus' public ministry actually began earlier. But coming back to the point, lots of people are going to Jesus to be baptised. In fact, more people are going to Jesus to be baptised. Verse 26, John the Baptist's disciples, they come to him and say, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. Everyone is going to him. Back in John chapter 1, verse 41, two of John's disciples had already decided to follow Jesus, but now it's more and more. People are not so much coming to John, but going to Jesus. Can you sense the, the emotion behind their words? They're, they're likely resentful and bitter about everyone going to Jesus. It's likely the language of envy and jealousy. And maybe it's their selfish ambition that's revealed. Or it could just be the fact that their teacher's influence and authority is being impaired. For them, it's about who gets the glory, who gets the following, who is greater. And as I said at the start, we probably know what that's like. We can be jealous or bitter toward that person who gets what we want, that person who gets the following, the friends, the glory. John's followers see a John-Jesus rivalry. But John says there's no rivalry. No rivalry. The next and main point for this morning is greater. John replies in verse 27 saying, A person only receives what God in heaven above gives them. And so God's sovereignty stands behind everything that's happening here. And so John doesn't desire to be someone else. Oh, how much more content we would be if that were us, not desiring to be someone else. John doesn't desire a, a greater role, a greater ministry, a greater following. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah, I'm sent ahead of him. Back in chapter 1, verse 20, John confessed freely there, I'm not the Messiah. And in verse 27, in verse 27, he's the one who comes after me. That's what John said, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John's repeating those sentiments here in chapter 3, verse 28. But John's disciples had forgotten what he'd said. They'd forgotten that John the Baptist's role was to focus on Jesus. His role was to get people to focus on Jesus. 
And John, he's sincere here. He's sincere, he's not fake. In Matthew chapter 11, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus highlights John's greatness. John's greatness compared to other people. But compared to John, Jesus is greater. Jesus is far greater. John uses the image of a wedding to communicate his point and his emotion. And do you remember from our first reading this morning from Isaiah 62 that the Lord God promised that he will that uh, promised his people that he will marry them. God will not leave his people alone and deserted. God will come. The savior will come and redeem his people, save his people, restore his people. Because God's committed to his people. He loves them. He rejoices over them like a groom rejoices over his bride. And in the New Testament, we're taught that Jesus is the groom. The Messiah, the the promised King and Saviour, Jesus is the groom. And his bride is the church, his people. And in our passage, John the Baptist compares himself to the the friend of the bridegroom. I will call that friend, we'd call that friend the best man. John is like Jesus' best man. I've been a groom once. I've been a best man also. Not at the same wedding, of course. (laughs) And I know that the role of the best man is not to get people to look at him. The role of the best man is to wait on and serve and listen to and assist the groom. In Jesus' day, in the first century, the groom was the central figure at a wedding. He was greater. The best man never resents everyone focusing on the groom and going to the groom, nor does John resent people going to Jesus. If that's happening, he's fulfilling his role. And John finishes with, he must become greater, I must become less. More literally, he must increase, I must decrease. Jesus the Messiah is assuming his rightful role, his rightful rule with people coming to, following and submitting to him. And John is totally satisfied with this. Totally satisfied John's, so Jesus' influence increasing, his position increasing, John is, is it's decreasing. And John's okay with this. He's more than okay with it. Jesus having a greater following than him, John is okay with. More than okay with it. He finds joy in it. Like the best man feels great joy for the groom. Verse 29, John says, that joy is mine. That great joy is mine. He says, my joy is complete. It's it's full. His joy is real. It's overflowing. It's fulfilled. And the increasing prominence of Jesus gives him surpassing joy. It's what he's worked for. John isn't jealous. He's joyful. He's full of joy. And only a great man can accept his demise with joy. John was a great man. 
Jesus was greater. And John showed faith and humility in shining this spotlight on Jesus. These last words of John the Baptist in this gospel, in verse 30, they are great words. But I wonder if they could be your words. He must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. Could they be your words? Could you speak those words with sincerity from the heart? With joy? And so I ask, in your salvation, in your life, in your ministry, is your joy really in Jesus and his greatness? You see, when it comes to salvation, many people want to take some credit. But we can't. Jesus is greater, far greater. He's greater in glory, in power, in holiness, in love. He's greater in his service. He's greater in his sacrifice than you or I. And your salvation is obtained all by Jesus and not by you. Do you know that? Do you rejoice in that? When you know that you can't be good enough for God, but Jesus lived for you and died for you to bring you to God, do you find joy in that? Do you feel joy? Joy isn't just a happy thought, but it's an emotion, an emotion that is bigger and deeper and longer lasting than happiness. Bigger and deeper and longer lasting and fleeting happiness. Does Jesus give you joy? And John found joy in serving Jesus. Is it your joy, Christian, when you spend hours preparing that Bible study that you lead or that talk you're going to give, the Sunday school lesson, only to have the spotlight be on Jesus? Not on you. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. I hope that you're not only okay with that, but, but you find joy in that. Not jealous, but joyful. When you share the gospel with someone, do you work hard to point them to Jesus and not to show them how good you are, how smart you are, or how humble you are? Do you feel joy when someone comes to Jesus and follows him? Do you know a deep joy in the midst of tears when friends leave to serve Christ far away? Does that give you joy? But I ask too, is Jesus your joy when you're suffering? When life isn't working out the way you want or the way you thought it would. You see, John had a real grasp of Jesus' greatness, and this grasp of Jesus' greatness sustains him while others around him, even his disciples, got discouraged. Is Jesus great to you? Look at verse 31. The point is Jesus is the one from above. He's the one from heaven. John, he was a mere man, someone from the earth. Jesus comes from heaven. He's above all. He's above all. He's greater in terms of his position, his status. 
and is above all in terms of his person, who he is, his power, his position, his person, his power. Jesus is above all people. He's above all all things, all circumstances. He's above all your circumstances. Jesus is bigger. Jesus is greater. And so I ask, do you need a bigger vision of Jesus' greatness? Jesus is great, but is he greater than your pain, your illness, your loneliness, your trouble? He is greater than our hardships in the sense that he rules over them. Over them. He's greater in the sense that he rules over them, but he's also greater in the sense that he is better. He's worth trusting in, even when life is hard, really hard. And he gives his people a sense of joy deep down that remains with us, even in our hardship. In the book, Look and Live, behold the soul-thrilling, sin-destroying glory of Christ, the author, Matt's Papa, says... Suffering is always polarizing. As the saying goes, you get bitter or better. You lean into God and your soul gets bigger, deeper, or you lean away from God into something else and your soul shrivels. That's why it's so crucial to know how to respond in seasons of suffering. In all of our trials, enemy forces of doubt are sneaking into the camp of our hearts. In waves... They seek to destroy the truth, not with aggressive, courageous, face-to-face combat, but with the cowardly supplanting of lies. They come at night with the age-old, God is not good, he is not kind, look at your circumstances. And the weapon we use is the gospel. But it's more than just saying, Jesus died for you, cheer up. The gospel must be applied to our suffering, massaged into our suffering. Papa suggests that this involves three things. What was, us remembering what was, what is, and what will be. Firstly, tell yourself what was, that Jesus suffered for you. You're not suffering as much as you could be or you should be. For hell is really what you and I deserve. The problem is real, the pain is hard, but what could be worse than suffering the wrath of God? Nothing. So look at the man of sorrows, your Lord Jesus, who suffered the wrath of God for your sins. Secondly, tell yourself what is. And at this point, quoting some Bible verses, remembering scripture can be so helpful. Reminding yourself that I have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Ephesians chapter 2. I am no longer a slave but a son, Galatians chapter 4. God's divine power has given me everything I need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1. And I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me, Romans chapter 8. And I am confident that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion, Philippians chapter 1. Tell yourself what is. And thirdly, tell yourself what will be. That my suffering produces a weight of glory that far outweighs them all. 
My suffering will end and give way to glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so every trial that comes is a chance that we have to dig ourselves deeper into true joy. God himself. He's worth it. He's better. He's good. So keep going. Keep believing. In Matt Papa's words, the call is to behold the Son of God, not merely look at him. It's to gaze deep into the gospel, not merely pray some prayer and then move on. We must linger. And Christianity is the hard, joyful journey of beholding Jesus by faith until the day you behold him by sight. We must not not merely look at Jesus, but rather fix our eyes on Jesus, as Hebrews 12 verse 2 says. Because if I don't fix, if I don't fight every day to fix my eyes on Jesus, my ADD soul will look to a million other lesser things. Jesus is worthy not only of our fleeting glances or our drive-by looks, but a steady gaze, our deepest contemplation, our most serious examination. And that's what Jesus is worthy of. Because he's greater, and that is what we must do. But this is not going to be easy. It's not natural. Papa says the nature of the glory is so ineffable, so bright, so majestic, so deep that we are blinded by its excellence. We squint. It hurts. On top of this, the nature of looking is such that we're not accustomed to. Our souls have shriveled. We are accustomed to Red Bull drive through pace life. And this is simply not how sanctification works. The looking will be painful. It will take faith. It will take guts and a willingness to say no to the noise. No to everything that distracts. End quote. Looking at Jesus is not easy. But he's great. He's worthy of it. He's worth it. And the joy he gives will be worth it. See, brothers and sisters, we get peace and fulfillment and contentment now and a joy unspeakable and incomparable in the life to come. So believe in and magnify and lift up Jesus' greatness in your life, in your salvation, in your ministry. Shine a spotlight on Jesus' greatness. The third and more brief section is given. This Jesus who is from heaven and above all, verse 34 says, God sends him. He speaks God's words. So he's to be listened to. And also the Father has given the Spirit without limits to his son Jesus. And Jesus now even gives the Spirit to we believers But the Spirit being given without limits, without measure, is only true of Jesus, not us. Jesus, he was given the Spirit of God in abundance. In fact, verse 35 tells us that the Father has given all things, all things into his hands. 
Everything, all power and authority and glory have been given to Jesus. He has the power to save. He has the power to give eternal life to people. And so look at verse 36, the last verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Believing describes an absolute trust in Jesus Christ. And if your trust is in him, then you're given eternal life. You you receive eternal life. If you reject the Son, if you refuse to believe in him and respond in unbelief, persist in disobedience, then you will not see life. Instead of experiencing life, you will receive wrath, God's just anger and judgment. And so I ask you, what have you received? Life or wrath? What's at stake here is huge. And there is still time, even today, to change your future. In the words of verse 32, will you accept Jesus' testimony? Will you believe what he says? The great majority of people do not accept Jesus' testimony, but if you want to receive life and not wrath, then you must believe. A man called Tim shares this story. One day while my son Zach and I were out in the country climbing around in some cliffs, I heard a voice from above me yell, Hey, Dad, catch me. I turned around to see Jack joyfully jumping off a rock straight at me, and he jumped and then yelled, Hey, Dad, catch me. We both fell to the ground. Uh, for a moment, I, uh, after I caught him, I could hardly talk. When I found my voice again, I gasped in exasperation, Zach, can you give me one good reason why you did that? And he responded with remarkable calmness, Sure, because you're my dad. His whole assurance was based on the fact that his father was trustworthy. I think it's just like the boy in this picture. That is trust. That is belief. Believing isn't the Bible's name for wishful thinking. It doesn't refer to believing strange or impossible things. It's not a leap in the dark. And it isn't some mystical quality that only especially spiritual people have. It's actually a very ordinary thing that we do all do every day. But here it is focused somewhere that's anything but ordinary. It's trusting. It's being confident in. It's relying on Jesus Christ. Belief is leaping into the dependable, strong arms of your Lord and Saviour, who is mighty to catch you, mighty to save you. You can trust the Lord Jesus. Have you thrown yourself independent trust upon him? In your heart and mind, give yourself in total dependence to him. Only Jesus can save you from God's just wrath and give you life. Yes, it's it's not politically correct these days to say that Jesus is the only way. 
and you'll be judged if you don't accept him. It's not acceptable today to suggest that God gets angry with people who sin, angry with people who reject his son, but that's what his word says. And it is truthful. So as for me, I'll believe it. I hope you will too. For whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Have you received that life? Jesus, the Son, is mighty to save. He's truly great and he gives eternal life to everyone who trusts in him. Have you found joy in that life? A joy that starts even now. And he's worthy of your service. So could you pray that you will experience in 2019 joy as you serve Jesus? Like John, find joy in the greatness of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word speaks to our lives and our situations. Sometimes we do get jealous. All too often we want people to look at us because deep down, even secretly, we want the glory. Please forgive us for our self-centered sin. Remind us that by trusting in Jesus we can have an So many of us do have, we have, eternal life, real hope, real joy, all because of Jesus. Please grow our trust and our faith in him. Give us joy as we serve him this year. And give us joy because we know and have experienced and been saved by Jesus, the Great One. Sustain us and give us joy even when we suffer even when we go through hard times. May we find our meaning, our purpose in serving him. And by your spirit, may we serve him with joyfulness. Empowered to do so by your spirit. We thank you, Father, that you do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.